the child's job is to get what it wants when it wants. And I think we often forget that, you know, that's why they do what they do. And, and, and invariably, underneath any need is the desire for connection because it's through connection that we feel safe. And we're always ultimately just looking to feel safe. Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast with me, Claire Pay. This is the podcast that talks about the things that matter to mothers and why mothers matter. And today we're talking about attachment parenting with Michelle McHale, who is the founder and director of Attachment Parenting UK. Um, If you're wondering what attachment parenting is, it's, um, well, Michelle defines it as responding to the needs of the child in a timely and sensitive way. So uh, we're going to be talking about what that looks like and how to do it in practice. Then also we talk quite a lot about positive discipline, uh, what that means and how to exercise it. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Michelle, thank you very much for sparing time to talk with me today about attachment parenting. Um, Could you just um, tell us how you got involved with um, Attachment Parenting UK? So when um, I was the tour director for 10 years, going around Europe, taking hordes of American teenagers uh, on educational trips. And then when I got pregnant and had my first child, I, um, I think she was the first baby I'd ever held. (laughs) <laughs> and she, it took five weeks, which is looking back is an absolute insanity, but it took five weeks for the penny to drop with me that this baby wanted to be close to me all the time. And everything she was doing was to be close to me and that I was her environment. So when I started to, to research this, so I, I'm a natural researcher and I, I'm kind of not shy of kind of going to extremes So I went down the rabbit hole of attachment and then I discovered Dr. Sears in America, who is sort of known as the the grandfather of attachment parenting, which is connected in some aspects to attachment theory, which um, was research looking at how children respond to a strange situation and what behaviours they show in terms of how securely attached they feel in the world without their primary caregiver present. So I, I studied everything and I was like, I'm going to do this and I'm, I'm going to breastfeed and bed share and baby wear. And, and I did the whole shebang. But like I say, because I'm quite happy to go to extremes, like, you know, I, I breastfed for five years. I, I never had a buggy. <laughs> we bed shared. We, anyway, we really went to town on it. And everything I read said, you know, if you meet your child's needs, they will become naturally independent and secure. She didn't want to be apart from me for a second. Um, She wouldn't speak to anybody that she didn't know. Uh, So she wasn't the poster child of attachment parenting that I thought I was raising. And it was very confusing I really doubted myself and I questioned what I was doing. And the whole time that was going on, even though she was like hitting all of her milestones and she was incredibly articulate and I had this voice that would say to me, she's not normal. And just before her fifth birthday, 
we took her to a GP and we said to him, listen, like, we are desperate now. You, you are our last hope. We know there's something not right. And he was, it was his last week um, before he retired after 50 years as a GP. And he, and he listened to her heart and he said, I'm, I'm going to make a referral to you and, I, and you need to go. And he even phoned up afterwards to make sure we went to this appointment. And uh, so, it, so it turned out she had two really rare heart defects. Gosh. And so just before her, uh, just after her fifth birthday, she had open heart surgery and she woke up from the surgery and she said, mummy, I can be a coast guard. I'm going to be a, a, a helicopter winch woman for the coast guard now. And then she just starts chatting to everyone and she's going around the ward, making friends with all the paramedics and the nurses. And, and I'm like, I have a different child. Hmm. So the child I was raising, I just didn't get to see the full expression of her until after her surgery. So I kind of got tested in what it is to to nurture and that what we do matters even when we don't see the fruits of our labors straight away. So it was a kind of hard lesson in the long game. <laughs> what, what was she like with her father? In, in what way? Uh, was, she, um, was she happy going with him somewhere or was it only you that she wanted to be with? Um, re- reluctantly, but, mm. but yeah, no, she would go with him. But I, I, I look back and 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 realise that what I'd done had not only had mattered, but it had mattered more than I knew. So by not letting her cry it out, which would have been unbelievably stressful on her body, mm, um, that was really important that I didn't let her cry it out. And it was really important that I was sensitive to her needs because I, her body, her needed that, and her wisdom knew that. And so it was really trusting. I, I saw how the wisdom of the child is always there and it's always operating. And if we listen hard enough and respond, it yeah, it often matters more than we know. Mm, that's amazing. And um, does she? How old is she now? She's thirteen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. and just fractured her arm, so <laughs> coming off a horse because she likes oh, no. high risk sports. So. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So she's okay going away from you now. Oh she... my gosh, she is the most independent, <laughs> gregarious. Oh yeah. my gosh, girl. Yeah, you can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing actually. Just um, before we get into the detail of it, I had something a bit similar with my son who who um, just never wanted to be put down to sleep at all. Mm. He always wanted to be held, and I did used to put him down. But then I'd rock him to sleep, and he'd lie down and um, start crying, but in a cross way because I had mm. a do- an older daughter, and I'd done the one minute, three minute, five minutes, seven minutes, and that had worked with her. But with Charlie, he he would cry in a sort of I can't believe I'm awake again way. And mm. so I took him to a cranial osteopath when he was about eighteen months old, and she said that. Um, because the blood wasn't flowing properly in his head, every time he lay down, it pooled at the back mm. and uh, worse to this effect. And this is what I understood. And so he was getting a headache. So actually mm. he wasn't wanting to wake up. He wasn't doing it because he was naughty. He was doing it because he couldn't sleep um, because it was painful for him. And she did some cranial osteopathy and he slept 
better after that. I'm going to do a podcast mm-hmm. on sleep soon and I'll give the rest of the story on that. But he, was, he sort of could sleep for more than 10 minutes at a time then, you know, or rather he could go to, I could put him down and he would sleep and then he'd wake up for other reasons. But yes, it's, uh, it is something, as you say, to sort of listen to your children and, and not assume they're sort of being willful or something. Um, so um, do you want to talk about how you, how you got involved with Attachment Parenting UK mm. or, or what Attachment Parenting is? Well, well be, be, because of researching attachment, I I then trained with Attachment Parenting International to become a peer group support leader. There was only one other person doing that in the UK at the time. So I set up my group in in Totnes with a friend. Like, you know, I'm used to 50 American teenagers following me <laughs> up the Eiffel Tower. So this was very different. And um, nobody Oh, oh, no. no. And, uh, partly I was relieved. And, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't know if this was a thing that people would be interested in. And within a year, there were so many people. We had to change venues three times to get a bigger okay. and bigger venue. And I realised, oh, like there's so many parents out there, predominantly mums, who were seeing that their their values and their beliefs and their attitudes weren't being fully met by maybe their health visitor or other traditional groups. And and there they were really looking to find like-minded people who were interested in kind of exploring different approaches, approaches which are much more mainstream now. So, yeah, even just, you know, people using slings. So 10, 13 years ago, that was fairly uncommon. Um, that's one of the reasons I moved to Totnes because I was like, everyone uses slings here. <laughs> so mm. it was just a, a, yeah, a great opportunity to share experience. And what, what I found is I kept getting emails from people all over the country saying, well, is there a group local to me? And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, and then I thought, why isn't anyone else training with Attachment Parenting International to run groups and and sort of surveying people I knew and within the group, people were saying they wanted something that was British uh, because they didn't identify in the same way, you know, just the language, you know, mum with an O, it's like, oh, well, that's, that's mm. not me. <laughs> so um, I thought I'm going to have to set up Attachment Parenting UK and step down from my, my role with them. Um, Attachment Parenting International set up Attachment Parenting UK predominantly initially as a database for groups that were existing of their own accord and then we ended up affiliating our own groups and supporting them Um, and then I created the Positive Discipline online course which is the only accredited Positive Discipline course and that's you know founded in non-punitive consent-based approach to kind of really research-based progressive parenting oh well we can let's um yeah i'm really interested in that and we'll we'll talk about that um a bit later but should we talk a bit about um the sort of elements of attachment parenting and i've looked at your um website and you you have some very dense sentences there which (laughs) in the manner of an english comprehension i'm going to try and unpack (laughs) make you unpack so 
Um, one of the things you talk about is responding to the needs of the child mm. in a timely and sensitive way. Mm. So um, first of all, what do you see as the needs of the child? In, in general terms? Just in general, yeah. yes. What do you, or what do you, um, babies and toddlers really need? Uh, well, because we're con constant contact creatures, because we're social creatures, connection is absolutely everything. And the child's job is to get what it wants when it wants. And I think we often forget that, you know, that's why they do what they do. And, and, and invariably, underneath any need is the desire for connection because it's through connection that we feel safe. And we're always ultimately just looking to feel safe. And, and mm -hmm. children are great at, at seeking that. It just, it can look to us like it's messy or inappropriate, but, but they are so neurologically immature. You know, the brain doesn't develop till we're 25, and yet we expect children to show remorse, you know, when they hit <laughs> someone, even though that's the most violent time of life, toddlerhood. So, yeah, it's really making connection the, the, the goal over everything mm. else, because that's, that's what the children want. So how would, um, what would you mean in a, a timely way? Do you, uh, I like, is it always got, has it always got to be instant or is there a, a way of delaying? Um, if you're busy doing something else, do you delay going to see them? What, what do you think? Uh, I think it's totally context dependent. So the last thing we would want parents to think is that you have to rush <laughs> and, and, you know, not let your child have, any upset for a single second like no not at all um you, depending on the context yeah what's what's appropriate what's your child how how are they communicating their need you know and if it's through distress well then that's a really good information right that like if it's distress then they they want you now <laughs> if if it's if it's a mom come here well then maybe it doesn't have to be right now like maybe there can be a pause so it's it's finding what works and and trusting that the child is resilient enough to sometimes wait and but that the child expects to be responded to we we come in expecting to be in trustworthy relationships we expect to be someone to come and care for us and soothe us and yeah and empathize with us Mm. and of course so how, well, we can't do it always instantly and that's fine <laughs> yes yes um what so you mentioned wearing a sling before um how, how do you uh, if that's something that someone's thinking about doing how do you introduce that how does it how does it all work a lot of children love them uh it's it's an amazing it, it's actually physiologically beneficial like if you can wear your child in a sling because they're having to calibrate with your movement. They develop their vestibular system by being in the sling. So that creates their sense of balance because they're always in that relationship with you physically. So there's, and, and obviously you can respond in a more timely way because your baby's right there in front of you. <laughs> they can sleep on you. You can be heart to heart while they're sleeping in the sling. So it's very connecting and beautiful to look down at your, your snoozing baby. And some babies don't like them. <laughs> some babies just, my, my 
daughter would only sleep in the sling if it was if she was outdoors with me. I would literally stand on on the threshold of my house, and indoors she wouldn't sleep. Take a step outdoors, she would. So, like, <laughs> some children are very specific about about how much or how little they enjoy being in a sling. So it's it's you know if you're finding it doesn't work, it might be it's not the right sling. So the, there's a right sling for the right child and the right sling for my first child wasn't the right sling for my second. So this is why getting, um, seeing a sling consultant, getting some advice and help on wearing it safely and ergonomically so it's comfortable for you and your child is really important. It's mm. like having a well-fitted car seat. You know, the, the sling is, its ergonomics are, are crucial. And what happened, is there any um, research or evidence about pe- babies who've been in slings when they can't be in a sling anymore? Do they, is there a, a developmental stage where they're quite happy not to be in a sling anymore? And does that come before or after you have to stop <laughs> wearing the sling? I, I think it's very child, very child dependent. So, and also size dependent. You know, I had very tiny babies and it was easy for me to carry my first one for a year and a half but but some people have bigger babies and you just you know it's it might not be comfortable <laughs> um and so you know some children walk at nine months and others don't walk till they're two so yeah it's all it's all dependent mm. on your own child and what are the signs that the child's had enough of the sling does she just or he just not want to get in it anymore just wants to get out they'll let you know <laughs> Yes, yeah. <laughs> children are brilliant communicators. They'll let you know. <laughs> yes. Um, so looking at so attachment, you would say in terms of responding to children's and um, babies' needs, do you know what the physiological impact of what's going on in the brain when you are when they're crying and you respond, um, or they're crying and you don't respond? Have you have you looked into all of that side of things? Yeah. So in the, the first couple of years of life, the more. Um, empathetic and loving uh, responses the child receives and the more loving stimulating responses the more it develops the part of the brain that is responsible later in life for how empathetic we are so they've seen that children kind of deprived of loving caring nurturing touch and language and eye contact all of those things they're deprived of those early on they're not able to kind of catch up. So, you know, the, the typical examples being that the babies in the Romanian orphanages who were, who were deprived quite literally of all of those things and had a high, high mortality rate, which just, just shows how dependent we are on being in relationship all the time and being in, in for babies being in co- constant contact a lot of the time. Mm. And what do you know what impact it has on the mothers when um, they're responding to their children like that or not responding? Is there any impact on what's going on in the mother's brain? So there is um, what you see is a lot of mirror neurons going on. So mothers and their babies will become in sync. So, for example, the, the research into how this is this happens up at Durham University at their sleep laboratory, their mother-child sleep laboratory, and they see that when the mother and the and the child sleep together, the mother will um, rouse just a few seconds before the the baby rouses, and that they will 
mirror positioning and breathing and heart rate and all of these things. And this is this is why my daughter wanted to be close to me all the time, because I my heart rate and breathing was regulating her heart and breathing. So that, yeah, it, I mean, it's amazing to think how interconnected that dyad, that the mother infant dyad is. It's, it, yeah, it's mirror neurons going off all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, it must be... Um... It's it's very stressful when you've got a crying child that you can't respond to for some reason. Um, it's uh, I think mothers are um, programmed to be stressed when they can't <laughs> when they can't respond to their children, um, and so to be able to go and pick them up. But then at the same time, it's very frustrating to have to keep to interrupt what you're doing to then go and because your child started crying again. Um, it's designed to be the most stressful noise there is. Evidently, crying is the most distress, distressing noise a human being can be exposed to, like worse than a pneumatic drill and all that other stuff. It's crying. so mm. And for good reason, right? We're designed to respond. <laughs> but isn't it um, true that it's it's your own child's crying? It's mm. where another child's crying mm. isn't quite as bad if you think there's they're not your responsibility or there is a, if you hear a child crying over there and you see they're with their mother you don't you don't get so stressed I mean if the child's crying there's no mother you get really <laughs> you think oh well, what's wrong but um there's something about your own child's cry mm. that just pierces is uh mm. and just sort of tips your emotion whichever way it goes if you're already stressed you think oh I've got to go and respond and I'm in the middle of doing something and I can't but um they won't stop until you respond. And quite rightly, otherwise you would actually think, oh, I'm just going to finish the washing up. But actually it's a really a sort of let's do this now mm. sort of cry. Um, and in terms of um, the developmental stages, uh, how does attachment parenting change or how do the needs of the children change over the, over the years? Have you got a sort of tranche of, you know, under nine months generally? I know each child is different, mm. but then how do they move from wanting to be with you all the time to being happy in a, um, a say, preschool or school environment? Well, I think you're right saying that is totally different, like that you'll have a parent who parents the same way and one child runs to school happily and the other one is like, yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, we do all come in with our own unique design and and our own kind of invisible thinking about how we experience things. Uh, as a parent, it, it's really easy to think of it as a reflection of us. We generally kind of, we either blame ourselves or we take credit for things that actually <laughs> aren't to do with us at all. <laughs> it's just in your child's design. But I I think, I think you know, the overall picture, no, no matter the age of the child, it's just honouring them in their experience. And I, and I think that's actually much harder to do than than we think because it's it's being it's an invitation to really really love our children because it's not about tolerating their tantrums or tolerating the misbehavior but it's it's accepting them uh, and in that acceptance we're able to really love them and see them for who they are but I, I think you know we as parents we can we often think that caring means distracting our child from their distress or ensuring they don't ever experience upset or trying to fix or make better a situation that they don't like and sometimes it's just the child is having their experience and that's okay 
And can we just honour that and be the empathetic witness to difficult things? Or can we just stay loving and allow the feeling to move through, trusting that this is the body's wisdom, trusting that they have innate resilience and well-being? And yes, they're upset that they can't have that particular cup right now. And we can we can validate and be empathetic and, and but let them have their disappointment. And and I think when we take on this job of like having to fix and make sure they don't ever get upset about anything, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves and the and the child doesn't get that opportunity to to experience everything, knowing that everything's okay not to be afraid of their experience, which is how we, and eventually we get conditioned to think we should be afraid of our experience. But that's how, is, does that um, draw out of your positive discipline course or is that an attachment parenting thing? Because that's how, that, it's making me think about, um, you know, if a child wants something that you can't give them or you don't want to give them because they, as you say, they're, they're assisting on a certain cup at a certain time and you could easily give them that cup. Mm. But actually, how do you discern when you shouldn't because the point is that they don't get everything they want or you should because actually it doesn't really matter and they have an attachment to that cup and don't withhold it unnecessarily, which how do you discern between those? Uh, by listening, by if, if your child's been whining all day, and everything's wrong and they don't like the plate and they don't like the carp and you've done everything you can to accommodate every request and they're still grisly and whiny, then it's like your child's really asking to feel something here. So they're just looking for a vehicle that can trigger them to have a download of tension. So if it's that, then it's like, okay, so by being kind and firm and saying, you know, we're not going to change anything right now. Then they can have their their feelings about it. They can have their tantrum. They can feel the anger and that will subside to sadness. And then they can, you know, then it's like the calm after the storm. They can download all those little accumulated tensions, which, which is like a healthy reset button. And sometimes we need to do that and we see children need to do that. And other times they just want their cup and fine, great. <laughs> have, have your different colour cup, why not? <laughs> so, yeah, it's just Yes, I, I I think it's when you when you sort of take the power dynamics out of a relationship. So it's not sort of I will have my will or you will have your will. It's uh, working together mm. type thing. Because I, I sometimes think when my children were younger, well, even now, sometimes I think, oh whatever they can you know it's not they can have this but if they are you know if they're like this again a second time then it's developing an issue but you know now I'll, I'll let them win as such because it's not something that I'm going to argue about and if they're insisting on this cup today they can have it but if they do it every day and it's you know someone else's cup I think you, you decide whether it's a sort of one-off and it's an outworking of an emotion as mm. you say that everything's just wrong anyway mm. And you think, oh, well, let's just sort of pacify this situation or whether it's something that's developing into sort of being strong willed. And they're trying to, um, I don't know, trying to beat me or something. And you think, <laughs> well, actually, no, there's got to be someone who's in charge here. I mean, is that is that where this sort of positive discipline comes in or what is, do you want to tell us a bit more about what that is? Yeah, well, I mean, what you're talking about there about power is that I think children experience a lot of powerlessness. You know, and the only things they really have any proper control over is sleep eating and toileting so it's I, I always if you know if you're seeing signs of your child 
needing to exert power or control over a situation, then there's lots of fun games you can do where you can endow your child with the power. Maybe maybe they're the ones that have the password to the secret doorway and you have to beg to go in and only your child can decide if they let you through. Like because they need that, you know, they 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 don't have a great deal of autonomy over a lot of situations in their lives. So filling up their little cup of feeling powerful and feeling strong and, you know, beating you at rough and tumble or whatever it is, you know, like winning. And if they're trying to beat you, it's, it's really interesting because, because it can often look like our child is being manipulative or scheming. And I always think of it as our children are so intelligent. They are constantly experimenting with strategy and when I when I see that, so so when you see your child doing the, the tantrum that's not a kind of I'm offline and I'm completely now not in control of my actions or emotions, but but one of those tantrums which is I really want something and I'm going to cry a lot and and be very noisy as a strategy of getting what I want. I think well, great try. Like that isn't that is an intelligent. <laughs> Thing to experiment with I, it doesn't mean I'm going to say yes I'm going to still be kind and firm and say no but but like mm. yeah I, and I think the way we perceive our children is is everything in, in how we how we treat them so the our positive discipline course is a kind of blend of this understanding of state of mind and well-being and where our well-being comes from and that we're not experiencing our children we're experiencing our thinking about our children coupled with all the research child development things around praise and rewards and punishments and aggression and power struggles and all of those big juicy topics <laughs> i think it's uh, actually what you're saying that reminds me that i wait, that i think as a mother you have to have quite strong self esteem so that when your children are being annoying or shouting or something you don't see it as an attack on yourself you see it as what it is you locate it in them so this is them expressing something and I often thought when they were little actually and I mean they still do it obviously but I'd uh, they'd be watching something on tv and I'd have to tell them to turn it off to come and eat and I think and they'd be frustrated and I think well if I just sat down to watch something and it's getting to a really good bit and someone said turn that off for an arbitrary reason to come and eat something you don't really want to eat I'd be really frustrated as well but as a parent you you self-manage don't you and you think I'm going to do this because you can see the benefits I need to eat and otherwise I'll be hungry or I need to cook but as a child you don't really see the benefits of turning the tv off you know it's all negative to you and of course they're going to be cross and it's um it's something I think that you just sort of accept that they're going to be cross but it's still going to happen that their response is not going to change the outcome Mm -hmm. as such but they have the right to have that response they have the right to be cross yeah and and just and just to have someone be empathetic and and validate that that they don't like what's happening um because it's much easier to come to terms with something if you know you're kind of seen in that context and I I think you know because because the human brain doesn't develop fully until we're 25 because of that we we forget like just how underdeveloped children are and so we can pretty much guarantee we are over expecting of our children psychologically 
a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Do you think, um, well, can we just touch on uh, the great Gina Ford Mm -hmm. a bit? Because my my children are 12 and 15, so we were, I don't know when she came into her sort of forte, but she was definitely around when my daughter was born with the very much, you know, she will eat at 6 a.m., 10 a.m., 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. and you ignore them in between more or less and you will get them on a routine and if you go to them at night when they're sleeping it's it's you know wrong they won't when they wake up you know they won't sleep you just leave it was very much I thought Gina Ford was very much designed around um uh trying to get parents to just carry on their own lives Mm. largely and not responding to the needs of the child um do you is she still around? Is she a big thing in parenting circles? Do you think that the gene of four is there another guru who's come along with a timetable for my six week old? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I think she's become a bit of a mythical, a mythical creature now, hasn't she? It's, I mean, I, I remember yeah, 13 years ago, people talked of Gina Ford and it was kind of Gina was pitted against attachment parenting as is a sort of polar opposite of um, adult-centric as opposed to child-led. And, um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be an appetite really for that anymore. It's, it's definitely growing in a different direction of being much more respectful to the child. Um, and I, I think within that, the, the shadow to that is, is mothers either trying to trying too hard to be too brilliant and 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 kind of thinking that it's their job to teach their child about emotions children know how to feel all of their feelings so we don't have to teach them how to do that um or even how to regulate them we just just simply by honoring their experience when they're in it and holding really loving firm kind boundaries that they will work that out for themselves it's a bit like thinking we have to build up self-esteem build their confidence well they have that it's for us to ensure we don't do anything to damage it by you know by not shaming them or blaming them so it's it's a different way of looking at their innate well-being and and their yeah their factory setting of common sense and wisdom would you say when you say um honoring their emotion what what would that look like can you give an example so if if they're having a tantrum and they're completely offline it it holding that space lovingly uh, and not trying to not trying to reason with them for being in that state not trying to say, well, why are you upset? Well, why won't you sit down? Well, why can't, you know, hug me? And why won't you hug me? And taking it personally when the child says, don't touch me. (laughs) So (laughs) it's just like, it's going, okay, this is what's here. It's kind of, you know, like trying to stop the tantrums a bit like going outside and shouting at the clouds to not be there because it's, it's nature. Like children are a force of nature and their feelings are, and children are so allowing of their feelings you watch I mean I've actually felt annoyed with my when my girls were little they could move from irritation to joy to frustration to anger to happiness like in a nanosecond and I'm like I can't keep up 
I'm still cheesed <laughs> off about something that was happening five minutes ago. And they're just like, boom, 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 total acceptance, no inhibition, total freedom of expression and until we teach them otherwise. So mm. by, by allowing them to be in their experience and just staying close and loving and, and not trying to make make their experience different, not trying to stop the tantrum or distract it or divert it or, yeah. What happens, though, if you're out and about? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, my children didn't really have tantrums like that. You know, they'd get cross or something, but nothing that people would stop and stare. But people are, you know, there are children who get to such an extent that people do stop and stare. Um, but you're saying not to distract them or something. What would it look like in that situation if you're sort of in public and your child is acting in in a in a way that looks um, like they're really distressed and something needs to be done about it. If, if they're really upset, I mean, finding a, a quiet place to just hold that space, if possible. And sometimes it's not possible, and sometimes we just we just have to be in it, noticing our own discomfort, noticing all our imagined ideas of what people might be thinking about us, which are only imagined ideas. And just noticing, ah, all of my thinking about other people, how they're judging me, actually means I'm not listening to my child right now. When we make it about us, we're not listening. So it's it's just noticing, oh, I'm thinking I'm being judged and watched. And just no, no, noticing that, and that will start to diminish the more we notice it. And then we can really just be with the child. And, and actually, you know, tantrums that generally last between one and a half and five minutes, which isn't very long. When you're in it, it feels like an eternity, but it's not very long. And the, and the more we allow it and honour it, the, the, the smoother it will move through. It's when we try to reason with the child and understand that we prolong them. Mm. Is it is it something with um, as we're on tantrums? Is it something that children just grow out of um, eventually, or do you would you not say of trying to find a way of helping them manage it in some way that that this is not a sort of state you want to be repeating on a on a regular basis? That it's something that you know is not an ideal situation for them to be sort of shouting and screaming and and so on. Well, that I mean that's down to neurology in part because the reason children go offline and have meltdowns is is because children's amygdalas the part of the brain that's responsible for that alarm system of flight or fight that's very sensitive very very sensitive to you know the, the chemical cascade that happens so it's not a case of um them being able to control that you know control control impulse doesn't happen to three and a half four years of age so it will become less sensitive over time. Um, but, yeah, your child's probably less in control of that than you think. <laughs> mm, and, mm. and the other thing as well is an amazing opportunity. If you're in public and, and your child is, is going a little bit bonkers and you can be there kind but firm and loving, then recognise what you're doing because what you're doing is role modelling what it is to be with a child in that way. And for a lot of people, that's alien and strange. And that's fine. Um, so, yeah, give, give yourself some, some uh, 
some recognition for being willing to, to do that and not fall into thinking that you have to be seen to be strict and punitive, you know, when actually maybe that's not that if that doesn't feel good and let your feelings let your feelings guide you. If it doesn't feel good to be punitive, if it, if, if the feeling in your body is one of tension and and icky and sicky and like then that's not the right thing if it if it feels peaceful to to be loving then be informed by that what what would the firm element of that be you said to be kind and firm and loving how would how would you be being firm during that situation so i mean it depends what's going on but let's let's take a uh, the classic scenario you know that the broken biscuit and the child doesn't want the broken biscuit. And you can see this child really needs to download some tension. Like it's been brewing for days. So you, you say, I'm really sorry, but there are no other biscuits. And, and you hold that firmly just out of respect for everybody in the situation. And then, and then yeah, honour your child's response. <laughs> I sometimes think with um, my daughter in particular that when um, she was little that she would be cross about something, cross and cross, and while I stayed calm, she'd still be cross, and it's only when I completely lost my temper <laughs> she would calm down. It's like she's provoking a response in me and she needed that response, and it's almost as though a sort of an anger shared as an anger halved, and she'd wait for me to to get really, I'd just have enough. And I said, why didn't you? And I remember one time walking along by the park and she was, I started off on something and I just sort of shouted at her straight away, right, okay, well, blah, blah, blah. And she can't, I said, I'm just going to go straight to the cross bit because it's going to save time. And then she was fine. I said, oh, well, I'll just save the bit mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, and <laughs> I'll save, save the calm bit and I'll respond. And I, I know as an adult that one time I was really fed up with some situation and I was goading my husband and goading and he was staying calm and firm and loving <laughs> and I was, you know, da, da, da. and it's only when he absolutely got furious with me, I felt a lot better. Mm-hmm. And, it, I, and I sort of stopped then. And I think there's, I don't know, that's just my observation that sometimes someone being really firm and loving, you want them to lose a bit of control, as long as you know they're not being really you know abusive or something you want someone to suffer with you in, in your in your your horror I don't know if that's something you've sort of come across but that's just my amateur observation but it's very funny you should say that because in our workshop this morning um, a couple of mums said it's as if it's as if our children want us to shout when we looked into that a little bit what what we were seeing was that the, the children wanted to feel safe and up until that point they didn't know where the boundaries were. So the, the mum said, actually, they weren't being firm enough. They weren't being clear enough. There was still some apology in how they were saying what they were saying or, or they were ignoring certain things. And the, child, the children were, like, were really asking, like, hold this for me because I don't feel safe and I, I will only feel safe if I know you've got, you've got this. So... Um, yeah, there's there's a place of of real clarity and firmness, and that that comes from confidence. I think it comes from complete confidence that that if you're setting a boundary, you know why. And a lot of the times, I think we set boundaries and we don't actually know why we're doing it. We we maybe we do it because we think we should, or because other people might expect us to. 
So it's getting really clear on why is this important to me? Ah, okay, I can see this is really important for my child. Therefore, I'm very connected and committed to why I'm holding this boundary. And when we're very, then, then we do it with a different energy and our children will feel it. And the whole mm. time they feel that we're a bit, we're not completely clear or if there's any, any ambiguity, they will sniff it out and they will test us. They will test us to know because they need to feel safe intelligent mm. oh well actually interestingly as a as a teenager my daughter's much easier to manage it's like she's got all her teenage years out of her when she's between the ages of six and nine and and now I don't shout at her if she um, you, you know if she sort of has a go I think oh she's just letting off steam and I'm not going to respond to that and that's almost like that's a you know that she's free to be cross these days I'll let her be cross and I'm not going to rise to it but um yeah when she that's a really good point I think that's probably she was thinking right how far can we go with this and then and then that's enough um just going back to the 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 attachment thing again I thought of an example um with uh, responding to children's needs things like preschool um uh, there's again there's sort of society's construct that children well there's society's construct that children need to be independently immediately which is absolutely wrong that's not even worth discussing but going to preschool um would you say there's a point where if someone's very well attached, they don't want to leave, you say, okay, well, you don't have to go or you go and you stay with them or you go and leave them for an hour or something. Would What would responding to your children's needs in that situation look like? That That is the unanswerable modern conundrum, isn't it, of people needing to work, they need their child to go to nursery, their child doesn't want to go, like how... How much do you accommodate the child's needs and wishes? How much can you on a practical level? It's a really, really difficult one. Um, but I think that the way to ameliorate what might be a difficult situation for the child is, is if I, you know, ideally you find a setting where somebody within the setting recognises that this child really need someone else that they can build an attachment with and that they've got a relationship with and someone who they feel really safe with and then it'll be easier for them to transition between situations and some children have their their alarm system is just is just very fine-tuned so saying goodbye is an alarming situation for that child but if if the if the person they're being handed over to He's able to hold that and be empathetic to the child and let the child be in their alarm, but then have the experience of recognising that actually nothing bad is happening, that they are safe with this person and they are safe in that situation. Then, you know, that that would be ideal. But you need somebody to understand that and recognise it and respect it and, yeah, be open hearted. (laughs) Mm. it's very difficult yes my son my son didn't really like preschool and um so I quite often went and just picked him up and brought him home but but you know the the grandparents approach is don't be soft you know you have to enforce this and I think about it when they were younger the the phrase was clingy 
and clingy was a negative mm. phrase. And actually, I even moved myself with my son to say he's well attached. He's very well attached and he doesn't like being separating. And now he's 12. He can articulate it so well that you think um, he said, I just like being with you. I like to be with you. And, um, you know, I'm, I don't mind being at school, but I, I'd rather mm. be with you. <laughs> and, and I say, I assure him that will change as, you know, as time will go by, he, he'll have other interests. Um, but there was definitely a feeling, I think, in our parents' generation that you you don't, uh, all the words were given, you don't give in to the child, you don't you know, you don't pander to them, they're too clingy, you make them stand on their own two feet and all that. And um, I mean, that's the the opposite of attachment parenting to a large extent, isn't it? Yeah, to some degree, yeah, there can be. It can, it depends on how the person is perceiving the child. So if they perceive the child negatively, uh, if they see, if they see cling, clinginess as a weakness, then they're more likely to treat the child in that way and the child will get a message that there's something wrong with them so that yeah that's it's not helpful <laughs> and um yeah so many children have that experience of just preferring to be at home in their safe and familiar place and why wouldn't they i admit it's that is their common sense that is just totally common sense so yeah whether we can accommodate that or not is is influenced by a myriad number of things and if you're and if if your child is one of those that just runs into school without a backward look like don't think it's because your child isn't attached it's simply your child is just designed differently (laughs) Mm. do you ever find come across um say late teenagers who are still wanting to be at home does it ever become a problem as such where there's a an impact on their ability to be independent because they, like, can attachment parenting go too far, do you think? Gosh, I don't know if there's been a stu- I mean, there have been studies showing that the more you respond to a child in early years, the, the you know, the better the outcome for everything in adulthood. Um, in terms of whether children are less independent, I don't think anyone's really looked at that because there's too many factors to extrapolate from from that raising a child is the most intense and and long and complex (laughs) process of any other mammal on the planet so um yeah I'm not familiar I'm not aware of that being a theme that I've come across and I've come across pretty much every theme I think over the years Mm. but no most I mean all the comments I receive from parents of older children are just is, is how secure and independent and happy and how they choose healthy relationships and seem to have a good relationship with themselves, which is what it's all about. I, I think, you know, if we want to really protect our children, we we help them connect with their inner authority because outer authority is is going to become less trustworthy. So... Can you, sorry, can you just say what inner authority so their, is? So their innate wisdom, their, their inner knowing, their, you know, being, having that ability to, to feel the feelings and not be afraid and therefore be better able to listen to within, to know what's correct for them as individuals. I think that's how we, how we are going to protect our children moving into this unknown world 
right now. <laughs> mm. Well, uh, well, thank you. Well, but just before we finish, what um, can you say a bit more about the Attachment Parenting UK? Uh, how do people find? Are there what is it? Is it local groups? Do you turn up? And uh, well, our groups all very quiet now because together, of what? COVID. But um, mm. yeah, if you if you we have a website attachmentparenting.co.uk and we run workshops so if you if you want to work with Michael and I we do five-week workshops where we we really dive into the state of mind understanding and how and and why mood matters and how that informs everything else and then we look at all the other the hot topics of positive discipline and then uh we also do a self-study online positive discipline course which you'll see on our website and um or you can work one-to-one with us so we do one-to-one consultations we often work with couples which is really lovely when you've got mum and dad uh looking to work together but we do a lot of work with single parents as well so yeah check out our website and our facebook page there's about forty-five thousand people on our facebook page so if you ever have questions you can get amazing peer support from our community it's the most phenomenal kind and lovely lovely people on our page <laughs> lovely well I, I mean you'll hopefully be in a good position to answer is attachment parenting do you think that's the uh, predominant way of parenting these days or the aspirational way of parenting or is it still a niche mm, good question I, I think it's a lot less niche than it was I think um uh, gentle parenting natural parenting attachment parenting they're all a little bit interchangeable now you know there's no set definition of what attachment parenting is i mean as attachment parenting uk we have we have our our own angle on it but it's not the angle there is no angle that's that's generic to everybody so it's it's, it's a yeah it's definitely an evolving feast Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you very much, Michelle. It's lovely, lovely to talk to you about it all. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. Um, I was listening to the excellent podcast called Postcards from Midlife with Trish and Lorraine the other day, and my ears pricked up because they were talking about being in the park. Um, one of them, she's got a nine-year-old, even though um, most of her children are older. So uh, we're another generation of mothers, really, and there were some millennial mothers there, and their children had, one child had taken another child's toy, I think it was, and uh, rather than just saying, which which I might have said, you know, give it back, just give it back now. They were negotiating and discussing. They had the two children over. How do you think the other child feels? You know, what, how about giving the toy back now? How would you feel about that? And I think uh, the thing with attachment parenting and any parenting style is um, it, can, it can be quite hard work. That sometimes I, what I really liked about what uh, Michelle said was about boundaries and that at some point, the child just needs to know that there's a boundary and that's it. They're not going to be able to go any further from that. And it, I suppose it's a bit like having arms around you and having a hug if you're feeling out of control. So I think boundaries are really important. But within that, um, it's really important to reflect what children need and uh, respond to them. And I also... Um, I really like the idea of the emotions and just letting a child feel emotions 
And uh, the other day, my my teenage daughter was just in a foul mood. And I thought of it as an emotion in search of a cause. And so when her younger brother breathed or did something else horrendous, she absolutely let rip and she was furious with him. So um, I told him it was just like a lightning conductor, really. She was very cross. She needed something to to blame it on. And uh, she blamed it on him. And I think that made her feel a lot better. And he managed it. I'm also listening to Ask Lisa, which is a podcast about parenting dilemmas uh, by an uh, American um, lady called Lisa Damore. And I listened to the one on uh, the podcast about handling sibling rivalry. And she made a really good point, actually, that... Um, it's that sometimes it, one of them will provoke the other. And I know that uh, my son, who's the younger one, will provoke his sister, mainly when she's been having a go at him for quite a long time. But he'll provoke her. And uh, on the podcast, they were saying, actually, if you punish the provoking or you just get the provoker out of the way, say, I know what you're doing, you're to stop doing it. That can stop an argument from escalating into into a fight. So, um, yeah, so I found that really interesting. I'm a, a massive fan of podcasts and uh, I'd like to recommend a few others, which aren't all parenting podcasts, but you might like them. Um, there's one called Just One Thing with Michael Mosley, and it's all about little things you can do on a daily basis to make you feel fitter and healthier. Um, and as a result of that, I'm now brushing my teeth in the morning, standing on one leg with my eyes closed, uh, breathing in for four seconds and out for six seconds after I've had a shower, which ends in a one minute cold shower. So, uh, yes, I'm slightly dreading what he's going to suggest I do next week. So I'm not sure I've got the time to fit it all in. I've just been uh, I've just found a podcast called Prison Bag. Uh, which is really interesting it's about by a wife of a, a chap who goes to prison. And her episode four, she's talking about um, uh, all people, young people who are in the foster care system um, who end up in prison. And the lady she's talking to talks about the importance of attachment and how if children can't attach at a very early age, they find it very hard to regulate their moods and they, they just can't cope with life. And that's what leads to um, generally, I mean, it obviously doesn't have to, but it is a reason behind criminal behaviour. And she said, if someone was born uh, with or had only one leg, you wouldn't tell them off for, you know, struggling to run. But children who are born into very troubled families who end up not forming attachments, it's as though they've only got one leg and it's very difficult for them to relate and to uh, manage their emotions. So, um, yeah, I found that really interesting to listen to. Uh, for people who are of a certain age, like uh, me, there's a podcast called Ecstasy, The Battle of Rave. And it's it's all about the ecstasy back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. I didn't get into it myself, I have to say, but I did like Acid House and I like the music. And if you like that sort of era, it's a really interesting podcast to listen to. And then just a fun one um, is called Cold Case Crime Cuts. And it's a spoof on podcasts um, by author and podcaster. So uh, he's very funny. He's a very funny guy. So if you just want a sort of jokey podcast to listen to, to cheer you up, I'd recommend that. So those are all other pod other people's podcasts you can listen to. I get to listen to quite a lot now because my daughter is a referee, football referee, and I go and um, uh, give her moral support on a Saturday morning. So I stand and listen to podcasts. And I'm also training for the uh, Great North Run, which is a half marathon. So I get to listen to lots of podcasts then. Um, 
right. So I would say please rate and review, but actually I think everyone's really busy. Don't bother rating and reviewing. I hope you just enjoy the podcast and subscribe so you can listen to more of them. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook occasionally. You can find me on, it's called Mother's Matter Podcast. And uh, do feel free to email me on mothersmatter at outlook.com. Uh, my name's Claire. Thank you. Bye. Bye.